Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, I just wish God would tell me what to do? I just wish he would make it clear to me what I should do. Situation where you feel like there are a bunch of options in front of you and it's really hard to see which one is best, which one is right. Or maybe you're like me, um, I've been in situations where I've done things that are maybe questionable in their rightness and I thought, you know what, if God showed up right now and told me to stop, I would stop. Yeah, but because he hasn't, I guess I'll keep going, right? And so, uh, now, I mean, there's a reality. That's just human experience, right? That's, that's what it is to be human. We do not know what is good and right all the time, but we're trying to figure it out, and we're trying to figure out the best way to move forward. But let's now add on to that reality of human experience certain cultural realities, like questions like, what kind of media should I pay attention to and what media should I ignore, right? How much should I care? Like, how deeply should I be passionate about the things that are happening in our government right now, right? Like, like at what degree should that affect me? Uh, when should, <laughs> this is fun, when is it time for me to start reading the terms and conditions on the apps that I download on my phone? Like, when, when is going to be the right time for me to actually start reading those instead of just clicking accept to get through, right? Uh, what technology should I expose my kids to? Should I be looking forward to making use of artificial intelligence when it becomes widespread in our culture, right? Uh, how, okay, so those are all like one category of questions, but like, how about just this simple question? How do I respond when my neighbor does something or lives in a way that I disagree with? The, the answer to those questions is not always clear. And you add on to that reality, this idea, like Satan, when he lies to us, he lies best not by in developing new things or a new story or in a new narrative, but he lies best by twisting truth, things that already are, and twisting them to a certain degree. So we have to deal with more complexities, even in just like basic intellectual understanding. Uh, we have to deal with complexities in how we regard basic historical facts. We have to deal with complexities in uh, what is called, the, you know, the science. You know what the science is, right? The science is the authority on everything that ever has existed uh, and, and ever will exist, right? And so we have to deal with the complexities of how we address the science and deal with it. We have to deal with complexities even in the realm of basic faith because what Satan is really good at doing is he's good at giving partial truths, but then twisting truth on another part. And so we have to even figure that kind of stuff out. And so often, it's easy for us to say, or, or easier for us to choose the path that says, I just want you to make this black and white for me. Right? That's what I want. I want. I want a do this, don't do this. Right? How about like, there are technological dangers, potential dangers out there. So you know what? My family just won't use any technology, right? Like that's what we want. 
Now, we know that that's not realistic, but that's what we want, right? Uh, we know that there might be an agenda out there, whether it's in uh, information that comes our way or whether it's the science or whatever it is. And so, so uh, because it has an agenda, we just won't accept that anything that it has to say, right? Life is much more nuanced than that. Right, there's this reality that it is not as black and white as we are trying to make it, as we desire to make it. And so we have to navigate many, in fact, we have to navigate many more gray areas than we do black and white areas. Right, as we walk through life, there's more gray that we have to work through than black and white. We have to spend life pulling truth out from lie when it's presented to us as a whole. We have to, uh, to spend life discerning fact from fiction, and sometimes we need to be aware of motive and intent in ourselves and in others to know the best way to respond in particular situations. So we want, what we want is a rule to tell us what is right, but in the New Testament, we actually get something that is far more appropriate for dealing with the nuance that actually is life. So instead of a law in the traditional sense that we think of law, instead of a rule that tells us do this, don't do this, in the New Testament we are given a tool that helps us navigate complex and challenging questions like the ones that we've been talking about here, and that tool is discernment. Discernment is the tool that we have been given. So today, what we're doing is we're taking a break from the book of Leviticus for a four-week series that is going to help us examine discernment and how we deal with these kinds of questions, these kinds of decisions as Christians. So, so today is just kind of a, a, an overview of discernment, how does it function, but over the next several weeks, we're going to look at like how do I discern the will of God? Uh, we're going to ask questions about uh, how, what is the gift of discerning of spirits, right? Because that is a specific spiritual gift that is talked about in the Bible. What is that talking about? Uh, how is it an aid to the body of Christ? And we're going to ask questions like, how do I discern heart motives, right? What is going on under the surface and what a person or even what I do and the things that I do and I say? So, uh, we're in Philippians, though, and we're doing this overview today. Philippians 1.9 starts like this. It says, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, he says in verse 9, and it is my prayer. I need to take note of two realities with me. The first is, the reason that he is praying this prayer. So he's getting ready to reveal to them a prayer that he prays for them, that is close to his heart for this group of people. But uh, you have to understand the reason for his prayer. Why is he doing this? And so you look back just before verse 9 and verse 6, it says this, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? This is, by the way, grounding every other thought that Paul has to say throughout this letter. It is all oriented toward this idea that God has started something in you and he is bringing it to completion. Right? This speaks of a process of us being brought towards wholeness or maturity, if you will. 
right? So we talk about this, right? We talk about it because I, I try to say it every single week and we put it on the wall, on the foyer. We are stories that God is writing about Jesus making things new. We are not yet what we will be. He is renovating us to turn us into new creations that we might more fully reveal the kind of work that God wants to do in all people. So God is doing something in us with an end goal in mind that is far greater than anything we could begin to imagine. And Paul says, you know, I'm sure that God is going to bring us to completion. And so the awareness that we need to have as we walk into this prayer that Paul is going to pray is that God is constantly increasing our spiritual maturity. That is his aim. After we believe in Jesus and we start walking with God, God's goal is to increase us in our maturity because he has a picture of what we will become and he is building us up towards that. This whole letter is written with that mindset. So this prayer that he offers, it is aimed at that idea of spiritual maturity. The second reality to note here is that uh, this prayer parallels his prayer for the Colossian church in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. If you read the book of Colossians, you would see if you line these two prayers up against each other, it's almost the same exact prayer, right? There are a couple of implications of this. First of all, what that means for us is that this prayer is very common in Paul's thinking for all Christians everywhere, right? These, the kind of things that he emphasizes in his prayer, like touch on the deepest desires that he has for the Christians in the known world at the time, right? So that's the first implication. The second implication is if it's common, then it describes what Paul sees as fundamental to Christian life and Christian community, Whatever he has to say here are going to be some very core, very basic things, and that's why he is reinforcing them with prayer. So we have fundamental realities that are both crucial for our spiritual development and crucial for Christian life and community. So just like, what would your prayer be? If, if you knew that, like if you knew that these were things that are crucial for spiritual development and for Christian life and community, what would your prayer be? Here is, here is Paul's prayer. It goes on in verse 9. His prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So this love is, is love without a clear, direct object, right? There's not that your love for this person or for these people, uh, meaning what this is telling us is it's describing more of a characteristic than it is a specific love aimed in a specific way, the characteristic of love that is shared amongst all Christians, right? And then he says, I pray that this love may have, uh, or that this quality of love, this characteristic of love may uh, abound more and more, or uh, the, it literally says super abound, that your love may be super abounding, right? I pray that this collective quality of love may be overflowing like a river that is at flood stage, right? That it just goes on. Now, I know about rivers at flood stage. I grew up on the Mississippi River, right? Uh, I, I lived through two significant floods of the Mississippi River, and, uh, and that is the kind of picture that we have here, that there is this uh, love that is constantly overflowing. So just a, a note that uh, this series is about discernment. We've talked about that. That's what we're going to be looking at 
for the next four weeks. And, and that discernment to some degree, since we know that that's where we're going to what we're going to be talking about, the discernment has something to do with what it looks like for us to be and become a mature, discerning people, right? But we need to clarify that it is not discernment for discernment's sake, right? It's not discernment for discernment's sake. Why not? Well, he tells us by telling us the foundation for discernment. The beginning of discernment is love, right? Holy Spirit produced love is the starting place for discernment. That's why he says, I pray that your love may abound with all discernment. Right? It's not simply discernment for discernment's sake. It's discernment that has a foundation of love. So when Jesus said, uh, in the New Testament writers, when they talk about the idea of being discerning, they're talking about something that is first and foremost grounded in gospel love. Right, love for God and love for neighbor. Right, that that is the, the kind of the beginning place of how we determine uh, and make decisions about what should be and what should not be. And occasionally, someone might be able to rightly discern things without this kind of love. Occasionally, right, but discernment exercised in the way that Jesus intends it to be exercised is going to have a consistent foundation of love of God and love of neighbor. So uh, seminary is an interesting place. I went to seminary, uh, and uh, you know at seminary you encounter all sorts of interesting folks. Uh, the, the place where I went, there were two main programs. You had a, a place where you could go get a master's in mental health counseling or what is called a, a master of divinity, which is a terrible name for any kind of degree, right? Because it implies that I'm somehow going to master divinity, right? now. Yeah. So, uh, so no, that's not how that works. But those are the two degree programs available. Both programs are intended at the end of the day. I mean, if we really think about what they're doing, they're intended to shape and form students to be better discerners, right? To, to better be able to take apart God's word and discern what God is up to in the world. Now, the mental health counseling program, that is, uh, that is geared towards being better discerners of the soul. What's going on in somebody's heart? Helping them discern themselves, right? The other program is, help, uh, is geared towards being better discerners of God's word, but I, I want to just tell you that any person can want to be a better discerner, right? Any person can do that. It was not unusual to encounter a person who every now and then, like, clearly showed a desire to know what is right out of a sense of self-importance, right? Out of a sense of, you know, I know better. I have the right thought about this. I can rightly say what is good and is not good in this situation, right? Out of a motivation to be confident in knowing that they know what is right, to give the impression to other people that they can rightly divide truth from error. And I want to tell you, such discernment, it gives the facade of maturity when in reality it is actively opposing maturity, Right, so 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3 says this. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Right, he, what he's saying is uh, he's using this specific issue that the Corinthian church is dealing with as an example 
of how knowledge works itself out in Christian community. He's saying, you know, all of us have this knowledge that, uh, of what meat is sacrificed to idols and what meat is not. He's like, but if you are concerning yourself primarily with that knowledge, he's saying this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? If anyone imagines that he knows something, it's not just about the knowing. He does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Right? The foundation of our knowing and of our understanding what is good and understanding what is right. It starts with love. If we abandon love and go straight for the discerning, we are working actively against the kind of thing that God is trying to do inside of us. So when it comes to saying this, like you, may, you may hear me say this. Okay, pastor, all right, I hear you. Love, I want, I'm ready to be a better discerner who loves, right? Okay, if you tell me that, my first instruction to you is a question. And that question is this, what do you love most? What do you love most? This is the beginning of discernment. This is the foundation of discernment. You have to figure out what you love, right? Do you love others seeing how right you are? Do you love your own success and achievement? Do you love your particular kind of entertainment? Do you love control? Do you love being important? Do you love your false sense of freedom and being able to do whatever you want to do? Do you love the idea of your kids finding success and fitting in on the world's terms? Or do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? This is the primary work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is trying to work inside each and every one of us. This is the foundation of it. He's reorienting your heart to love God and love others. Right From the moment you believe, he starts going to work on you, convincing your heart of the false loves that you're attached to so that you might be more readily attached to the loves that he has given you. It's like, oh, so you love using your money for you. Well, why don't you take that money and give it to image bearers who are struggling, right? Why don't you take that money and use it to resource his kingdom? Oh, you love control. Well, why don't you just surrender to the one who used his control to save you, right? So one of my primary prayers for my kids, in fact, every night at bedtime when we pray, I, I do, I, I've never prayed a prayer where this is for them at bedtime where this is not in the words that I pray for them. I pray that their love for God and love for others would be greater than anything else in the world. That, that, that their first love would be oriented in the way that God has designed love to be oriented. Love for God and love for others. One of my primary prayers for you, this church, is that your hearts would abound with love for God. And from that place, love for others. So, if you are lacking, well, so it is, not, it is not the kind of love that you can somehow produce from within you. So when I tell you that I am praying for these things, there is a reason that I'm praying for them and not telling you to do better at them. Because you cannot produce this love within yourself. Your heart, when you were born, you were born with a heart of stone. You cannot change your heart. 
You do not have the physical capability to make stone flexible. The only way that love comes is if the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart and a new set of loves and becomes within you an overflowing reservoir that pushes a river of love into you and through you onto others. So if you are lacking love, the answer is to start going to God consistently and saying, I do not love like I should. Create in me the love that only you can create. Right, so towards that end, um, I don't usually pray right in the middle of my sermon, but I want to pray for you. Church, I would ask you to stand. I want you to receive this uh, prayer that the Holy Spirit would do a work of love uh, Father, we thank you for your love for us, which you have so clearly shown to us time and again. And the most clear example is by sending Jesus to take on himself our sin, our shame, to die in our place so that we can be forgiven, so that we can find life. Father, you were concerned with giving us gifts and inviting us into relationship with you, though we consistently have told you time and again that we want nothing to do with you. But your love to us is so faithful and so true. So we thank you for that love. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room. May we not take your love for granted, but may we receive it as a gift to us. And may, as we receive that gift, may it do such a work in us to recognize the extent of how, uh, to which our gratefulness might go. Uh, that, that you would produce in us a love for you that does not just simply accept the things that you have told us, but, but that truly adores you as a father who deeply loves us. So God, only you can do this work. No amount of words that I can conjure up are gonna, is gonna convince any heart. Holy Spirit, it is you that does the work. And so we pray, living water, would you overflow into the hearts of the people in this room and through them that your love might be like a river that abounds onto others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so uh, he keeps going. That's love, right? That your love may abound more and more. And then he says, with knowledge and all discernment. All right, so, so, so knowing that love is our starting line, knowing that love is our foundation, right? It's, it's our starting line. And by the way, it's our finishing line, right? For discernment, let's get to actually figuring out what discernment is. Paul the Apostle says that our overabundant love ought to be accompanied by knowledge and all discernment. So let's talk about knowledge first. Knowledge, this is what knowledge is. It seeks to understand things as they are. Right? Knowledge is concerned with facts. But we're not told just to have knowledge in this circumstance. We're told to have knowledge and discernment. So you need knowledge to get to discernment. But discernment is kind of like the culmination of knowledge rightly applied, right? So, so this is discernment. Discernment tests 
and determines what is right for a given situation. Right, discernment is able to pull apart words, right? It, 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 it involves separating good from evil, right from wrong, <laughs> truth from error, right? But those, are, those things are all very black and white, right? Right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error, those are black and white. To make it, to make it so black and white actually oversimplifies what discernment is doing. Because someone with great discernment, can also tell the difference between good and best, right? Or, or someone who has great discernment is able to tell the difference between whole truths and partial truths. Or when it's appropriate to do something that in most other cases is wrong, but in this situation is right. So uh, let me give you an example, a few examples, actually. Play a question like, what do I do if... What do I do if I come to a red light? What do I do? Thank you. I stop. I didn't know. You've helped me be a better discerner today. I appreciate that. Now, what do I do if my wife is in active labor in the car and I come to a red light? You go. Yeah, I just want to let you know, I'm going to go, right? The Holy Spirit has given me discernment, and I know the right thing. I'm looking both ways. If that light is red, I'm going past it, right? I'm going through it because I'm getting my wife to the hospital, right? So how did I do that, right? It is right and good to stop at a red light, amen? Amen, all right. It is right and good to get my wife to the hospital, right? Okay. What I did is I tested and I weighed two goods against each other and found one to be right for that situation. Okay, another one. What do I do if? Uh, what do I do if my government asks me to pay taxes? Don't get this one wrong. You pay your taxes. That's good, that's good. Okay, a little more serious, right? What do I do if my government asks me to give up the Jews that I think I'm hiding in my house because they intend to persecute them for their Jewishness? I disobey. I, I do not regard that order. Now, how did I figure that out? Well, it is right and good for me to obey my governing authorities, and it is also right and good to protect the lives of vulnerable people. What did I do? I tested and I weighed two goods against each other and found one to be right in that particular situation. Now, in most other cases, and almost every other case, it is wrong to disobey the governing authorities, right? And in most every other case where I'm taking my wife, it is wrong for me to run that red light. I need to obey the law in those situations. But sometimes, now, I, I'm discerning that even if I get the traffic ticket, it is right for me to get the traffic ticket because I need to get my wife to the hospital, Right, because that is what is most important. Right? So this is discernment. Discernment helps us weigh these things out. Okay, so Paul is praying for us, and the prayer is toward this, this goal of spiritual development, wholeness, maturity, right? And spiritual development looks like love that overflows, like the Mississippi River at flood stage, right? But that love has an aid, a helper, that comes alongside love, and the, the helper is knowledge and all discernment. So, uh, so growing up on the Mississippi, this is what happened. We were 
constantly prepared for the river to be at flood stage. We expected the river to be super abundant to the degree that if you walk around the cornfields that are closest to the river or if you drive past those cornfields, they have massive ditches like the size of two roads that are dug alongside these cornfields that go all the way to the river. So that when the river fills up, when the river is super abundant, that water rushes into the ditches alongside these cornfields and makes it easier to irrigate all of the corn and all of the, uh, all of the beans and all of their crops that are there. Right? So, so it's a really good thing. We plan on the river being super abundant, and we also have an additional plan. When that river gets too high, we have these things called levees. And levees are there to stop the water from destroying houses and destroying more crops and destroying property. What Paul is saying is that love is like this river that's pouring out of you, but you have levees of knowledge and discernment that are meant to come alongside love and help guide it in the right direction. Right, so um, let's take it like this. Love that abounds towards maturity is love with discernment, right? Paul is qualifying the kind of love that we ought to have because he understands that our tendency is to do things with love that maybe we ought not to do. So he's clarifying the kind of love that we have. It's love with discernment, and that is the kind of love that leads us toward maturity. Imagine, imagine you have an old compass, and we'll just call it, for the sake of argument, we'll call this old compass discernment, right? And someone gives you a destination that you need to go to, and, and you know that that destination is at true north on that compass. Uh, imagine that true north for us is maturity, right? That's the destination we're heading to. We're heading to maturity. We have our compass called discernment. And, and the person who's telling you that, hey, that's where maturity is, it's, it's 1,200 miles away. It's a long way away, but it's true north. You just follow true north, and you keep going in that direction but there's a problem that you're not aware of. Your compass, good old discernment, it is an old compass, and it's got some dust and some dirt in it, and it's got some residue on that axis that the the little uh, pointer goes around on, and it's off by like one degree. Now, if you go 10 miles with discernment, and it's off by like one degree, you're gonna get to your destination. Right? You, can, you can get where you need to go with a compass that's off by one degree for 10 miles. But if you go 1,200 miles with a compass that's off by one degree, you know where you're going to end up? In a place that looks very different from the destination that you were supposed to go to. Right? So, so chances are where you end up is not even going to look similar to the place that you were supposed to go to. And that's the, that's the kind of idea that Paul is building for us here. Without an abounding love that is discerning, we will never find our way to maturity. So why? How is it that love, qualified in this way with discernment, moves us towards spiritual maturity? Well, in verse 10, he tells us. He says, so that, I want you to abound in love with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. The word, uh, this word approve, it is used all throughout the New Testament, but we encounter it being translated as another word. We encounter it as the word test, right? It, it's the word test. It, it literally is determining if something is genuine by testing it, by, by providing some kind of test, right? So implication, 
we will encounter situations in which what is excellent is not plainly clear to us on the face. And therefore, we need to test it by measuring it against God's word revealed in Scripture, by praying for the Holy Spirit to deepen our love for God and for others, by praying for the Holy Spirit to give us clarity, by seeking counsel from wise, mature brothers and sisters in our lives. So why does Paul give this qualification? Is he concerned that you might approve anything because of love? Right, like you don't want someone you love to feel bad for you addressing something with them, right? And it seems that Paul is kind of aware of this temptation, that for those we are close to, because we care about how they feel, we may be tempted to give our approval to something that is not good for them and mistake our approval for love when we do that. And Paul is saying, what you give your approval to may actually lead you away from love. What you affirm may set your compass off by two or three or ten or thirty degrees. And before long, you figure out that, uh, that, that your love wasn't really a love for God and for people, but it was for uh, wishing everybody could be happy and live the way that they want to live. Or it was for your own desire to live the way that you want to live. Or it was for being liked by those around you. But before long, you figure out that your compass was not actually leading you towards maturity. It was leading you in a different direction. And so, uh, at its core, what Paul is trying to get us to grasp is this. That followers of Jesus must love with discernment so that we can love what God loves in the way that he loves. Right? That's what he's praying for. This is why our love needs to abound, and this is why he's praying for discernment. We need to learn to love what God loves in the way that he loves. So imagine, you know someone who stumbles in their walk with Jesus, or they fail in some way. You know what you need discernment to be able to do? You need discernment to be able to know whether you need to bite your tongue and overlook that situation right now, or if you need to actually take a step to address and correct that situation right now. You need discernment to figure that out. Sometimes one is right, other times the other is right, and the only tool that you have to figure it out is discernment. Or imagine you're helping someone with financial troubles. You need discernment to know, do I give them money or do I help them find a different job? Right? Only discernment is going to help you navigate that situation. That's the only tool you have. Sometimes one is right, sometimes the other is right, and the only tool you have is discernment. So then consider this result. If we fix our compasses and keep coming back to true north, this is what results. It says, the result of this is that we would so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the result of us learning to love with discernment produces a powerful, otherworldly testimony to, among us and to those around us. Right? It's a love that waits expectantly for the day that Jesus is going to return and make everything right and take away all the gray areas. Right? 
It's a love that increases our purity. A love that produces much fruit among us. And it's a love that brings much glory to God. That's the result of following that true north that is provided by discernment. So uh, Tertullian is a, is a late second century church father, church historian. Uh, he developed a lot of writings, but one of the writings he developed was uh, to defend the accusations that were actively coming against Christianity. Because at a, a, about 180, 190 uh, AD, there, were, uh, there was just all, all sorts of accusations, all sorts of people trying to cast Christianity in a bad Light and um, and so Tertullian wrote to defend Christians to defend the church, and so he wrote about how Rome sent spies into churches because Rome they were really interested in this movement they didn't like that it was expanding in the way that it was, that it was and so that Rome the government sent spies into the various Christian churches and what Tertullian did is he recorded the account of one of those spies when that spy went into a worship gathering of the church. This is what it said. This is the thing. This is the result of what happens when we follow discernment as true north. This Roman spy said this. He said, these Christians are very strange. They meet together in an empty room to worship, but they do not have an image. This is very important for people in Rome because when people in Rome went to go worship, they had statues of their gods everywhere. But when the Christians gather to worship, he says, they don't have an image. They speak of one by the name of Jesus who is absent but whom they seem to be expecting at any time. And my, how they love him. How they love one another. That was the testimony of the church in the late second century. That's what people witnessed when they were among the church. This is the kind of stuff that results from this discerning love that Paul is actively praying for here. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, discernment is the skill to live in nuance with God's help. It's the skill that we have to live in nuance with God's help. Not every bad option is always a wrong option. Not every good option is always a right option. Right, and Paul's example proves the point. Um, think about this. Is it good or bad to get thrown in jail? It's bad. It's not. Like, if I get thrown in jail, you all should be asking some serious questions, okay? <laughs> it's not good to get thrown in jail. <laughs> Literally, right after Paul writes this prayer, he displays discernment in how he interprets his own being thrown in jail. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being thrown in jail, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What he's saying is what you probably thought was bad was not a good thing. It has actually turned out to be good because the guards here, every single one of them knows about Jesus now. Right? They, they've seen my testimony. And, oh, by the way, verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
That's a good thing. On the face of it, you would not look at being thrown in prison and consider that being a good thing. But Paul is saying, this thing that typically we would regard to be as bad, it is good now in this situation because of what's being produced. So here's the thing. We need God's help to be able to discern these things rightly, and that's why we pray. Right. So so, uh, just three kind of next steps for how discernment develops are obviously going to be spending the next three weeks talking about these things, but I just want to give you three kind of really simple things that help us navigate discernment. Number one, we must understand God's character, right? We must understand God's character. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Knowing the Lord his position, the things that he desires, the things that he loves, the things that he cares about, right? We have to have a a deep understanding of God's character. Number two, we must acquire God's heart. If you do not love what he loves, then you will not be able to discern rightly. Because maybe prison would be a good thing for you. Maybe losing prized possessions for the sake of someone else would be a good thing for you, but you're not going to be able to discern that or you're not even going to take a step into that potentially happening if you do not have the kind of love that he has. So here's what I know. We are not naturally inclined to agree with God about what is excellent until he gives us the capacity to love what he loves. So we need his heart, and I just say, like, you're like, how do I get that? I don't know what to do. I know I don't have God's heart. Would you just, like, commit yourself to praying every day about that? To confessing, God, I am broken. I, I deeply only want the things that I want. Would you teach my heart to want the things that you want, to love the things that you love, right? If you're like, I don't know what to do, start with prayer. Because that, through that, he begins to work and change and shape your desires and affections. Number three, Acts 20, 27 says, uh, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Church, we must rightly apply all of God's word. When Paul was with the elders in Ephesus, he was saying a final goodbye to them. And he's trying to encourage them. He's saying, hey, do you know what I held as kind of most important, most significant to equip you with? I did not stop making sure that you knew all of God's word, all the whole of his counsel, everything he has to say. This is why, by the way, that we're doing a series on Leviticus, right? Every aspect of God's word has something to show us that informs us how we think about him and how we think about the world that we live in. Every part of it is there to increase our ability to discern. Okay, so that was so what number one. So what number two is this? Good discernment starts with a new heart. When we hear Paul praying for our love to increase, we see that love, like that word love, we see it according to our own definition of love. But here's the thing. We don't get to define what love looks like. God gets to define what love looks like, not us. And in this case, it's a self-sacrificing love. A love that recognizes everyone's deepest need is reconciliation with their creator. 
A love that sees the gospel of Jesus as central to all of life. A love that prioritizes what God prioritizes. It's a love that relies on his word and a love that looks forward to Jesus' return and a love that has compassion on the hurting and a love that is grounded in humility and a love that approves what God calls excellent. There's a problem, though, and it's that we are not naturally inclined to love those things in those ways, which means we are not naturally inclined to discern. We, we might get things right sometimes, but by and large, if we do not have a new heart and new loves, we will not rightly discern. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this. It says, these things, that is all of these things that are excellent that we've talked about, right? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 14, it goes on. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In gaining the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit working inside of us, that's how we gain the skill to discern. It starts with us receiving a new heart. The only way you get God's love with discernment is that he gives it to you. And that starts with placing your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. It starts there, and it progresses from there by your daily surrender to letting his loves become first in your heart. So if you have not personally accepted Christ, your love will be stunted and your discernment will fall short. But when you trust Jesus and agree with God about Jesus' primacy in all things, that is beginning to gain the kind of discernment by which you can truly love God and love the things God loves in the way that he loves them. Church, would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you that you have given us this gift of being able to separate uh, what is good and what is best, what is right from what is good. Lord, uh, to, to be able to consider in light of your word and in light of the counsel of others and in light of the direction of your Holy Spirit to to be able to actually have clarity on things that at one time would have been much less clear to us. But I know that this kind of clarity is not something that uh, is easily owned by many or by myself at times. I recognize that um, I have so given my heart to love of other things that I have a hard time seeing what it is that you want in particular situations. And so, Lord, you are calling all of us back to true north, to right love with you, to, to right understanding, to grasping what your word has to say so that we might grow into the kind of people that you are making us into. 
so that as we follow that line of true north, there becomes an increasing testimony among us and to those who are around us of the kinds of amazing work of life change that Jesus accomplishes, of the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. Thank you for these things. Thank you for the gift of discernment and thank you uh, for the opportunity you've given us to, to grow in our love of you this morning. As we turn our eyes towards communion, would you, would you give us a greater love for you? We ask in Jesus' name.